This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Right, good day, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a really special edition today of Crisis Talks. Uh, I've got Craig Lapsley, the former Emergency Management Commissioner of Victoria, now CEO of Innovation Pro, uh, and who consults now to a number of different governments here internationally about crisis management, emergency management, community resilience, and the effects that we're seeing around now, particularly around bushfires. Craig, welcome along to Crisis Talks today. Thank you. What a great opportunity to have a chat. Today is really important given the fact that we're dealing with a live bushfire threat. Um, and we've got, we can see now with the effects that are happening across the East Coast in particular, uh, there's been a lot of disruption that's happened to the supply chain. There's been six fatalities that have occurred um, across, the, across the whole East Coast. And we've now got a number of live fires and a heightened, uh, heightened threat really over the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. What's been your observations of what's happening at the moment? Look, it's really interesting in the sense that um, if you go back a number of months and you see the drought conditions of what Queensland and New South Wales have actually experienced now for a number of years, it tells you about what was happening in Victoria in 2009. Mm. And that, those drought conditions haven't just popped up, they've been there. So you know, the, the drought of New South Wales is something that's got years behind it. And even if you reach back, even when it wasn't declared drought, it was still dry periods. They had dry summer after dry summer. So when you've got an underpinning issue of drought, it leads you to where, where you're going to go. And, and I think one of the most important things to understand with drought and fire is that the environment's so dry, the fuels are available to burn, but there's no water. So you think about, you know, in a year where you've got surface water, and if you're in southwestern Victoria currently or in the southern part of Victoria, they've had good rain, so the dams are full. Whereas if you're going to New South Wales, it's dry and there's no water. So once a fire starts, they're either cutting water further, they've got to be very considered about the water use or, or lack of water. And I know um, I've done some work recently in Queensland and even that understanding of that water is for the town's water, what are we going to use for firefighting water? So they're really careful about this use of water. And it's, yeah, it, it, well, as we all know, water is the weapon against fire. Yeah. And if you haven't got it, it's a problem. So, a real problem. so you know, I, I look at that and think, um, and, I, you know, it, it's, it's really easy to say um, someone's worse off than someone else, but New South Wales and Queensland are definitely in a different, a different um, scenario than most other parts of Australia. It is deep-seated drought, long-term drought, and now they've got fires in it. Mm. Yeah, we've... I mean, over my lifetime, I sort of lived through 83, Ash Wednesday. I think 47 Victorians lost their lives, 28 South Australians. Uh, we had the campaign fires in Victoria 2001, Canberra fires in 2003 with four deceased and 490 injured. Black Saturday, which you're a part yeah. of and, and followed on from there with, with 180 fatalities. Um, and this time around, as I mentioned before, we've got six lives lost. Why do you think people are still dying from bushfires in Australia now? Well, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, fire in itself, people are getting caught out. Although, although, and I haven't done the analysis, I'd suggest that our systems today are far better in warning systems, in the way in which media news runs 24 hours. Um, we've got more connect, connection to community. You might say that, Six deaths is, it's not a good position to be in to have any deaths. But, you know, in years past by, those six might be a lot more if we didn't have the systems we've got now. Now, I'm sure there are someone out there that will say a decision was made, um, they weren't aware, 
and there'll be you know, a story to go with each of those six deaths without a doubt, without yep. a doubt. And, they, and, and each of those will have a story of you know, not knowing where the fire was or not understanding the intensity of the fire. Mm. Um, but I think we're far better off now. I, you, know, you look at the warning systems we've got, um, the way in which... You think of the news systems. The news, the news is 24 hours a day somewhere... Yeah. Yeah. And, and even on TV now, like you've got three o'clock news in the afternoon, you've got four o'clock news, you've got five o'clock news, you've got six o'clock news. Yeah, it's not only just the one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not just this six o'clock news where we'd wait all day to yeah. hear the issue. It's live. And, and so I think in that sense, more people are aware. It's still very devastating to have six deaths in New South Wales. But, you know, I'm, who knows? It could have been a lot worse if we if we had taken that back a decade or two years or two um, but before us, so, so in that sense, um, I think it is about com- community connection, and I think the fire services across Australia have changed dramatically, probably because of two thousand and nine. You mm-hmm. know, when Victoria had that royal commission, it wasn't just Victoria. There was a national warning system. Yep. There's a national fire danger rating system. Yep. So it wasn't just improvements in Victoria, mm-hmm. and and I suppose it's the harsh thing. It was Victoria that had the event, but you watch. There'll be some more lessons learned out of these fires in New South Wales and also Queensland. Yeah, and look, you mentioned before about your trip recently over to LA, and I'm really keen to explore that and have the comparisons between what happens over there versus what we're seeing over here. But now, state by state, we're seeing it live right now. A client of mine right now, we've been working through daily updates. Uh, they're a national, oh, they're a global, sorry, logistics company, but operate a national network uh, here in Australia, um, which have been managing those disruptions very proactively. So, But the challenges they've had is really tapping into the rights of intelligence, the right updates around yeah. weather effects and patterns. What can businesses do to really make sure that they're queued in properly to these alerts? Yeah, look, I, I think there's... It, don't just take the base products of weather, for example. I think to get some advice, some good advice, and, and some of that is... Uh, either seeking the advice as a business to say, get someone to give me an understanding of what's happening. I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll give you a real practical example. When, when I grew up as a young boy, and I grew up in Bendigo, um, so central Victoria, and we'd always look at Perth and say the Perth weather would come to Adelaide and the Adelaide weather would come yeah. into Victoria. Yeah. If you have a look at it now, it, it, it is. But there's also a, sh- there's a, funny, there's a funny piece of weather at the moment. It's moved north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Perth weather, and there's a sh- horseshoe that's gone up through Northern Territory across into, nor- into Queensland and Northern New South Wales. Mm. It's, a, it's a really interesting pattern to look at. Although there is still major um, weather patterns coming from Central Australia into New South Wales, particularly New, um, New South Wales, okay, yeah. that are more westerlies than even northwesterlies. And I've I've noticed, and I'm not a I'm not a um, you know a person who is an expert in weather, but I've spent a lot of time in weather. Um, but it, it moves into that even our winds are stronger in recent times, mm-hmm. and and I think people are even noticing that we're getting stronger wind winds on a more regular basis. So something in the weather patterns has changed, and I think to run a business, whatever your business is, to understand weather events and understand the types of weather events we're going to see. And you can get into you know, climate change. And I always say, if you're not a climate change believer, there is enough evidence to say the, the, there is a change in the climate. Yeah. So whichever way you want to look at it, yeah, and, and I do understand why some people do not um, necessarily are believers of climate change because, and I've spoken to farmers about it, they go, well, you know, my, my fathers and my grandfathers who've run this farm before have had these weather patterns somewhere along the way. Yeah. It has happened. I think the fundamental thing with with weather patterns is weather and climate is different. Climate's long-term. Weather is what we're going to get in that four, seven, 14-day period. And I think we've got to actually start to understand that about what is the climate variations versus the weather variations. Uh, and um, in any business, if you talk about business, to understand that you could have disruption because of heat events, uh, bushfire events that are driven by weather, mm-hmm. uh, hail events. And I think it's as easy to say the hot will get hotter, the wet will get wetter, the extremes will get more extreme in a weather sense. They seem to be getting longer. Yep. So, so I mean, the normally normal pattern here is we wouldn't be sort of seeing this sort of fire activity probably till you know, Dece- uh, sorry, late December, January, yeah. um, and then now we're seeing it earlier. So early November, um, given that change in and, and even later. Yeah. You know, so Victoria yeah. at the moment's got a bit of a. And I, was, I said the other day it's more of a traditional fire season in Victoria because I mm. think it'll be January, February. Yep. The, the, the weather we've got in the the run up in November and the rain we had. And even the fact we've had snow dumps, you know, yeah, for a single it's day, mad the other day wasn't it, it? it's 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 different. Mm. Um, I think the fire season in Victoria will be 
a January, February fire season. But that's not to say it won't be a March, April one either. It, mm. You could see it move. That yeah, that here it is all about Queensland and New South Wales. And when it moves to the southern part of Australia, and that's really South Australia, um, Victoria, and Tasmania, that it's January, February, March, and April. And, and if you think the St Patrick's Day fire of around the southwestern part of Victoria a couple of years ago was um, one that was you know, outside the summer period, so summer summer doesn't really mean anything anymore in the, that that traditional view of hey, it's got to be summer. Although I, I would also say that you know, you're probably likely to get your hottest days in the January, February period, yeah. the hottest of the hottest days. But on the other day, you know, there was a, there was a day in the, out of the box only a couple of weeks ago where it was extremely windy and the heat was in for a day. Mm. And even this week in Victoria, you know, you're seeing, I think it's a, a, in the 20s and it goes to 36 and then drops back to 20 again. Yeah. You know, so, so you're still going to have these single-day spikes. Yeah. The, one that, the ones that I think are really, really important for people to focus on in a fire sense and a heat fatigue sense is where there's heat day after day mm-hmm. and the overnight temperatures don't drop, the overnight temperatures stay up. Mm-hmm. And that means the diurnal process um, is elevated. And that when I'm in the diurnal, that's that, that's that cooling during the night. Yep. Um, and we don't get that respite in the night. And that means we've got heat fatigue. We've got the environment's fatigued. Yep. The infrastructure's fatigued. Mm-hmm. So next minute you've got you know, trains, trains that aren't running or the power, power's off or yep. because of heat fatigue on systems. Yep. And, uh, and they're the sorts of things that all of a sudden you see this convergence of, it's not just a bushfire issue, next minute it's a heat issue and a bushfire issue, and there's fatigue in communities, and there's fatigue in infrastructure, and off you go. Yeah, so. Look, I remember you being a major champion for the interagency component, but then also the, the other effects or the consequence management components for all these confluence of issues that happen around either, you know, as you said, a, a severe weather event that can cause those um, uh, the heat issues for elderly people in particular and the awareness around those issues that extend to fire. What are the considerations around those sort of things and, and how are those sort of things being, again, from, from a business point of view or people out there listening and how can they make sure they're queuing in to understand what these threats look like yeah. and what they should be applying in their own workplace? Look, I, I think sometimes people over t- talk in a technical way and somehow we've got to get it back that plain English is the best way and bring it back. I often often say, hey, what does it mean to you? Like, what's it mean to you and your family or you and your business or your environment? And if you can conceptualise that and get it into your head about, okay, I have got someone who's elderly in my family that will not cope with heat, or I've got someone who's an infant and won't be able to cope with this. So mm-hmm. how do you, as a, a mature adult, mm-hmm. help others for a start, let alone yourself? Yep. Uh, then it's about, well, what have I got to do to minimise the impacts of these things? Yeah, so, so how, what have I got to do? But you also got to think about, okay, I'm going to turn the air conditioner on and that's going to you know, make me feel good. What about if it's the power's not there yeah. and the air conditioner doesn't work for you? What's your plan? So I think you've also got to take things away yeah. and think it through in the practical sense to say, gee whiz, you know, we've just had a really nice day yesterday because we had the air conditioner day on all day. What about if it doesn't operate? What am I going to do? I mean, that sort of takes it back a little bit, I suppose, to the to the Black Saturday fires. Um, what was your sort of observation? What were you? What was your role at the time? And, yeah, well, and what lot, sort of happened at that sort of stage? Uh, in two thousand seven, I was deputy chief at CFA, and I came came out of that role and went across the Department of Health and ran the recovery system for the state. Yep. Um, so I was I was more in the recovery side, but I was with the chiefs on the day as that day unfolded, mm-hmm. and it was a day you just knew it was going to be a day of difference. Yeah, it was definitely going to be a day. Like drought, forty-eight degrees, wind speeds. It was, you know, well and truly up. A lot of fuel too, wasn't there yeah, from memory? Yeah, is that is that sort of sorry, just to cut in there? Is that sort of similar to what we're potentially going to experience in? So we haven't had the drought uh, impact as much down here in Victoria, um, but there's been a lot of rain and there's a lot of fuel yeah. as a result. Does that I, mean I don't think you're back in '09 in Victoria? No, because you haven't got that underpinning drought problem. Yeah. Thirteen years of yeah. drought is the difference. Yes. Yeah, they they ran '09 was. A decade of it was a drought period running up to that. So it was yeah. the recipe of recipes. New South Wales and Queensland have got that because they've had ongoing drought. Mm. And that's where Victoria is different. That's not to say you can't have fires in Victoria that do massive destruction because you've got fuels. Yeah. And and the thing about fire is intensity. And people go, what's the word intensity mean? Think about your Canara fire or your open fire. The more wood you put on, 
the more you generate heat. That's intensity, the fire intensity, the heat that it generates. Um, and if you've got lots of fuel, you will get higher levels of the intensity will be higher. If, it, if it's a higher intensity, it takes more to put it out. It's got its own, it will create its own um, ecosystem, a fire ecosystem. It will burn faster, harder, hotter, all of those things. What's a fire ecosystem there? Um, well, that's where it starts to build its own weather patterns. Yeah, so it actually creates its own weather pattern and it's it's almost like where, well, it is, it, it, it will drag cool air in at the bottom and push it out the top and starts its own funnel. And you, you'll see these pyrocumulus clouds, the big clouds, yeah. that's what it's doing. It's actually drinking. And if you think at the practical thing, think about what you do with your Canara fire. You open the door up, you open the vent up, you drag air in, it burns faster, harder, more hotter, yep. and goes out the chimney. That's all you're doing. It's yeah, I've seen some of the imagery recently from flights or otherwise over New South Wales, and you can see those sort of, yeah. they look like mushroom cloud. From yeah. the, well, there was the one the other day, NASA have got a, a website, um, and I don't know the site of it, so I can't tell you, but I, I, um, someone sent it to me. And during the afternoon, there was a fire in the southern part of New South Wales where the NASA satellite picked it up where it, it, the, the, pume, the, 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 the um, smoke plume increased dramatically in the afternoon. And you could see it. The day had got hotter, and yeah. um, the winds had picked up, and here it is. It just it, it created that you know sucking at the bottom, come out at the top, and it creates its own weather ecosystem, and it, and it behaves differently. So what what's happening in the fire ground can be totally different than what's happening twenty kilometres up the road, because yeah. it's created its own, it's got its own energy. It's got its own heat source. It's created energy, and it's got energy and energy, it, it, which is the intensity bit of the fire, which means when it's like that. You know, a fire truck will have limited impact, if any. It's back to how do we protect that house, how do we protect that, yeah, so on. So it's not going to put the water that goes on, on the fire itself probably won't even reach the fire because yeah. it's got that much heat. It'll be steamed before it gets there. Uh, and that's why you'll see these big tankers, the air tankers, putting retardant in on lines beside the fire so as the fire comes up to it, 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 it direct attack at those times is almost ineffective. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely, yeah. So, so that, that, I mean, that's that's a fire tactic thing, and I suppose you know everyone will go, oh yes, I think we understand that. It's interesting though; some of it is as simple as that. Think back to what you see a fire do in your own, you know, a campfire, and then think of that by the multiples in size and multiples in heat, yeah. and you're in a different scenario. But it's the same principle. Yes. So on to that day in two thousand uh, uh, two thousand nine, it was. So. Yeah. Look, the day itself, and. And again, um, in Victoria, one of the most um, fundamental things of a bad fire day is the wind change. So the winds, the winds will change direction from the northwest around to the west or the southwest. And if that occurs in the peak temperature of the day and you've got a fire running, it means it changes direction. And historically, in Victoria, you'll lose more ground after the wind change and potentially more impact on communities after the wind change. So a northwesterly wind... The wind will move later in the afternoon around to the west or southwest and it will drive the fire different. And, for example, the King Lake fire, the fire that actually um, burned into King Lake, was underneath King Lake mm -hmm. and the smoke cloud had gone past them yeah. and they're watching a fire go past them. The wind changes and it came up the hill awfully quick and brought it up onto them. So, And if you don't know that... If you don't understand that, all of a sudden that's where you'll see these fires move really quickly in a different direction and you'll think, where did that thing just come from? Yeah, so I was always fascinated because um, my background in the Army was in, in surveillance and reconnaissance, planning in particular, so and that extending to sort of search and rescue style sort of operations outside. But um, we would always think about the advance yep. and, and plan an advance based on you know a, a rate of movement and a speed of movement and a direction of movement for, for, an, for an enemy in that case. Um, and I thought simply, you know, it would be the same process here uh, that you'd be analysing that movement over time, but when you have those shifts... Yeah. The difference in 09, though, there was very limited systems to warn the community. And yeah. one of the biggest things that come out of the 09 Royal Commission was how do you get systems that warn communities? And that's where now you've got apps and radio stations. And yeah. it was very limited in those days. Um, and not only that, there was also a culture change within the fire services about... Um, what they and I know in Victoria we spent a lot of time to say you know focus promise of life is number one of everyone and the second one is giving information out that can allow sure. people to make good decisions about their safety so you yeah. the shared responsibility shared obligation yeah. and for too long 
Um, I think a lot of people would believe the fire service would come and there would be fire trucks. And if they're moving that fast, you you, you can't move. Can't, you no. can't get the, the vehicles to where they need to be in that sort of environment. So, so And even if they were there, the intensity of the fire would, would restrict them to be totally effective anyway. They'll still be effective, but not in the true sense of putting a fire out. So... And the other thing about it, I mean, aircraft's been used differently. Um, you know, we were very strong um, in Victoria about, you know, keep small fires small and put aircraft out at the same time as the fire trucks go out. Yep. So you had aircraft in the sky and even um, it took a couple of years after I went on to do this, but where they've got, you know, automatic dispatch of aircraft mm-hmm. that's out, out as soon as fires are there. So now you won't, it's very similar to in a military sense, uh, aircraft is important, but aircraft is not the silver bullet that will no. put every fire out at no. all. You need ground troops to do that. You need, you know, to secure a fire. It's from the ground, but you certainly have a big impact from the air. From the air. Yeah. So it's got to be a joint effort in that sense. And and I think that's the thing. Sometimes the media, you know, fantastic, and the media need to tell the story. But I think quite often people see the orange air cranes or the biggest air tankers and go, "That's here. We're right." Yeah. The fact is, they're there. It doesn't mean you're right. It means they're part of the solution, but they're not the now that happens at the front end. So on the front line, we have the vehicles and the and the, um, and the firefighters and, and the aircraft working the, working on that front line. Can you give some some of the people out there an insight into what happens behind that, and in particular at Integrated Command Centre yep. or Coordination so Control Centre? Always sitting behind is management people that aren't out in the smoke and need not to be in the smoke, but they need to be very clear about setting a, a series of objectives and keeping the whole game together. Because in a, in a fire ground that's spread, um, if you're a sector commander, you may not have any idea what the other sector is doing 10 kilometres away or five kilometres away. So that's got to come up to somewhere and there's a structure about that called an incident management system. And you've got controllers, a single controller that's got planning and logistics and operations, intelligence and public information. Yeah. So there's a team approach to make sure all of these bits work together. And it's exactly, you know, we've now got threat of a fire through predictive services that could impact on these. The firefighters will know that through the operations arm, yep. but the public information section will know it too to yeah. warn them. So there's, and that has been fine-tuned in the last decade without a doubt because before then, with limited systems to get to the community, the public information officers were almost secondary in the discussion. Yeah. And and that's where we've changed the priorities to go, no, 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 the community is as important to make their decisions as just like the firefighter. It can't be just the firefighters alone that are making decisions. Mm-hmm. They'll make good decisions with good information, but the community needs as well. So so the incident management system is an integrated incident management, and that doesn't mean it's all from one service. It means it's integrated with police or, or people from a forest firefighting background or an urban firefighting background. And it goes in there with you know people like the Bureau of Meteorology having um, you know weather specialists. So it's built from people with specialties, and um, and that's put in. Uh, over the top of that is then obviously regions. So there's still so regions may have a number of incident managers running fires, um, and then obviously it comes up to the state. And if anyone understands span of control, your you can physically and mentally only manage so much. And they use this span of control of one to five or one to eight. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you at state level, if you're dealing with eight regions, if, it, if it's 10 or 11 or 12, it's too much. Uh, and for a region to deal with, you know, three or four or five incidents and then the incidents to have in their structure probably four or five direct reports, you'll get a structure working. And that's what it's all built on. So it's span of control, management by objectives, are the principles of it. People don't really talk about that because it's structural. I think they forget about that. They do forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't actually talk about why it's management by objectives and why it's span of control and the things that make the system work. And it's probably not important for everyone to know that. They they should have the trust and the confidence that it is going to work and it will work when it needs to and it will. But then you've got to make sure your systems work in a timely way. You know, good intelligence good information flow, and I always say it's about decision-making. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got to make a decision. Yeah. And to make a decision means you need information, and when you make a decision, you've got to tell someone. So you've got to be able to communicate effectively. And you know, if you talk about quality leaders in times of, of battle, whether it be a fire or a flood or a, a military operation, the clearer the leader is and the more concise but also never loses the ability to listen and observe, they're the, they're, the, they're the champions without it. And there's a set of skills, not everyone can do that. 
No, no. Not everyone can do it, particularly when it's battle day. Yeah. You know, and you think, hmm. And the other thing about it, you've got to be willing to put the time in before so when it's battle day, you're good at it. And I always talk about a football club. You know, you train all week for the game. Yeah. You play every game to get to the grand final. And when the grand final's on, you want to be at your peak. Right. So performing, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so these days, and and that's the other thing about fatigue. It comes in, and you, you know, I'm looking at. I've watched New South Wales and Queensland now. You think they've been going for months. Yeah. yeah. And fatigue is interesting because fatigue is mental and physical, but it can also be about complacency. Yeah. yeah. That ah, oh, yeah, I've got to do it again, or we've done that before and we'll be right. Yeah. You know, so how do you keep them at the peak? Yeah. It's a it's a it's a real team motivating leadership and I'll even go as far as it's a thing about stewardship which is in my mind a step above what a good leader is someone that's got that stewardship um, confidence coach supporter but also be able to step in at the right time and also trust others to get what's done so yeah so there's there's a lot in that there's a lot in what I just talked about Oh, there is. And unpacking one element is that trust element. So it's difficult to build trust when you don't have that sort of common operating picture or common operating model. Um, in 2009, you know, there's different um, organisations that were at play, the DSE, um, you had the CFA, MFB, you had boundaries which were, were broken across those different uh, areas of expertise or, or areas of responsibility. So, And the other thing that's important in this is... And, and, uh, and this is not easy to necessarily explain, though, but the bigger the day, the more difficult the day and the more pressure you put on organisations, they'll go back to their DNA they know. Yeah. They'll revert to type. Yeah. Now, what I just said is a, a simple set of words to say. It's actually quite complex to understand that. Yeah. And you have to train to be together and you've got to want to be together and you've yeah. got to learn to trust and respect in the peacetime because in the wartime, when the pressure's on, if, if you haven't... Um, built that foundation they'll fall back to what I call their DNA and they'll retreat yeah and they'll behave as individuals and they'll behave as organ as single organizations mm-hmm. and that's the day you don't want them to do that no you're right absolutely that's right. the day where you want them to play absolutely together yeah but if it's not done well that's where they'll go and they'll retreat on you how important is humility in those contexts because you know ego can take over and you step back into your own mode but how important is to be humble coming into that Uh, absolutely absolutely and that's that yeah that's that thing about who's the that's why i say about the stewardship of leaders that they can see the behavioral issues of individuals or the what i call the dna the underpinning issue of organizations and you've got to be able to be willing to talk about it in an open way which means you have to have that trust and respect on before to be able to talk about it and there are some some people that will not understand it, so that's where they need to be helped to understand it. And it's not it's not necessarily they've got it wrong. It's just they need to be championed to understand. On the biggest days, the joined collective will get you there, not the broken collective. No, yeah, exactly right. Um, we know the outcomes that day, and and we obviously saw post that what was the effect it had on the community. What what sort of what's the sort of things that you've learnt? In the work you've done post that event in particular as well about about how best to manage those types yeah. of events look it, it, that's a, a, that's a real complex um, thing because it, it, one of the one of the biggest learnings out of 09 for me was um about communities about not not the response people um there's a lot to be learnt about those and we did a lot of work to bring a more cohesive approach to that but communities you know what, what, the impact on young children the impact on youth the impact on men and women, uh, and some of the behaviours of how people um, see things. When, when you go through a massive traumatic event, and a traumatic event that probably takes away your place of um, belonging, that is, you know, your home and the things that really matter to you, it challenges some absolute core things about the individual and causes a lot of trauma. And I learned a lot, and I had to learn a lot about, um, and I'm far from an expert at this, but... You know, um, men uh, will behave a certain way. Women will behave a different way. And I've and I've seen that some of the best thinking comes from women in their cool, collected understanding of the event, and they stay a lot calmer. 
Males have a tendency to want to go and fix it now. Want to solve it. Yeah. Yep, they want yeah. to solve it. They want to be the fixer right now, yeah. and it'll be full of you know, they will be full of beans, and they'll want to get out there and do things, and that's important to understand because you need to get that energy. You need yeah. to manage that energy effectively. Um, but the ones that it, young children will not talk about it, and they they know not may not have the skills to talk about the trauma, but it will come out later on in life, and youth can very easily become confused and lost in what, what they were doing in life. A 14-year-old that might have had a plan by 16 to do X and this event comes along will change that dramatically. Yeah. And they need a lot of time to think it through and they need a lot of people to listen to them. Yeah. It's listening about where they go and giving them guidance. Uh, and then you've got you know the males that will want to fix the world in overnight and you'll have the females saying, hang on, what's going on here? And they'll become very much the centre of the discussion. Yeah. Now you might say that's almost too simple. It is what I just said. There's a lot. There's a lot of science into into what I'm what I'm saying that yeah. takes you down different roads in a psychology sense, and that's not my area of expertise. But I have learnt and listened a lot to the psychology of what happens in communities when things are traumatically changed and are traumatic. I put the question out to the team who've been managing the fire response here, and they've got a you know I think about thirty eight thousand vehicles they have on the road in Australia, about twelve thousand at any one point in time. Um, and you talked about the community input for resilience. How can organisations like the emergency services tap into the communities better to get better intelligence from them as well? So there's, tw- there's 12,000 12, sets of eyes on the roads. Well, it's interesting. If you think about, um, in the main, um, the volunteer network of fire services and SES and other life-saving don't underestimate the value because they are trusted leaders in their community and they're also a trusted network. So I often talk about the trusted networks in a community. Stop and think about in your community who's there, Lions, Rotary, sporting clubs, you know, um, arts groups. There's lots of them. They're structured, they're in communities and they are supported by community members and there'll be people in there that are leaders. So that network is something... I think is one of the learnings out of 09. Where those communities were quite structured, they actually, I think, recovered quicker. Okay, yeah. Um, because they had structures to do so. And they also had support structures within there. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll, use, I'll use an example. In Lawn, um, we had threat of fire there in 2015 during the Christmas period. Yeah. And we actually went to a meeting with the Lawn Trusted Networks. We asked for it to occur in the Life Saving Club. And in the end, that group of people, there was 21 people in the room who were tr- I call the trusted leaders of the community, and they were representing the organisations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then themselves would send out an email, I think it was every Thursday morning, um, to their networks. And I think they used to touch 28,000 people. Yeah. Like, and you know, like Life Saving, Lawn Life Saving Club, I think, has got 4,000 people on their, on their email list or something. So all of a sudden, a simple email would go out and they'd touch all these people about information about their community. Now, not all of it, not all of it was about uh, fires, but it was about the business that was going on and how the fires may impact or not impact. And if you think about the resilience of that community, one of the most important things for Lawn to do is have a very successful Christmas, New Year, January, February period, because that's where a number of them make most of their money. Yeah. Although that's probably changing a bit now that they've probably got a 365-day business down the coast. Yeah. But, you know, it's pretty pretty important to understand that resilience is not just about... Resilience got economic outcomes that are really important to keep the people employed and all of those things. So when you talk about resilient communities, it's, it's not just the safety of communities, it's got to be the economics of communities and the, and the fabric of communities yeah. that keeps it all... Yeah. And, I, and I, think, I think community resilience is the future bit. I think if we can actually understand, particularly rural and regional communities, what makes them tick and why they're there and how do you make them stay there? Mm. And there's some fantastic examples just in Victoria alone, let alone across Australia, about you know communities have um, got together and said, we are not going to not survive. We're going to be stronger in these communities and they have festivals and, you know, and they have business yeah. and they generate stuff, you know, Birchip, Donald. You know, yeah. there, there's examples in... in in parts of Victoria that are amazing communities because they've said, we are going to be resilient and we're going to have economics and we're going to have a social fabric and we're going to make this happen. Yep. Yeah, we saw it, uh, was it 2008, we had the floods up in Claremont. I was engaged by Rio Tinto to go and do the Community Recovery Committee, or establish that. Yep. Um, we, we did fodder resupplies for, for, the, for the affected farmers. 
But that network of farmers became the most important intelligence network for us to be able to communicate with everyone and be able to inform everyone what we were doing well, well, you, and, you think, and help with that. You think about Country Women's Association, you yeah. think about farming federations. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to the sporting groups mm. and you go, right, where's all this? Yeah, yeah. And, and they're all there. Yeah. I, I can remember after, after the fires in King Lake, we actually ran a tabletop exercise to reconstruct the King Lake ranges. Okay, yeah. And we found 28 groups and then we asked the question, well, who's these groups? Where's their leadership? Mm. Um, are they able still to be leading as a result of these fires or they've got other issues you know, to deal with. And then we went back and tried to glue all that back together. And you know what? I reckon that was a fundamental step of success because yeah. we reconnected to the kindergarten groups, the schools, yeah, all of those things. Yeah, we got in there. And, and, and not of that, you know, you go, well, you've got your own network. Why would we set up new networks when you've already got it? It's already there. Yeah, yeah. That's why I call the trusted network and then the trusted leaders. And you get that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, this this business I work with is, as I was mentioning before, they're a, they're a global business. They, um, they are a logistics company, massive coverage across Australia. The issue for them is that they, um, because they are so big, the boundaries that they skip are borders, and which means they have to tap into different networks along the way. Um, how would you advise businesses like that to make sure that they've got the right intelligence around the different, you know, that covers those boundaries um, and covers the, the threats on a, on a, on a, on a national level so, for them? So I, I'll take you a slightly longer way to understand that, I think. Um, I talk about communities, not just geographical communities. So yeah. a community could be the tourism community, could be the transport community, could be whatever. There's the... Now, you might see them different. They're, some people call them sectors, the transport sector yes, or the yeah. tourism sector. But if you just take them as the word community about a geographical community, yeah. but then across these communities could be the church community or the tourism community or the truckers community or whatever they are. Yeah, bang, they're there. And, and as soon as you talk that way, they aren't bound to, to boundaries. Yeah, they, of course. That, they're not across municipal boundaries. They, right. bounce, across, they bounce across state boundaries. Uh, so all of a sudden, the boundaries that we traditionally see as being something that people use about, oh, that municipality will deal with this. Well, these don't, they just reach right through it. They do, yeah. And none of that, some of them in industry are the entrepreneurs. So they're able to do things different than government, mm -hmm. but they also need to be viable to keep communities work because they employ people and they, they supply and they support. So, so if, if those communities aren't working effectively your traditional geographical community probably is not going to work effectively either. Yes. So, yes. so that's, that, that's that convergence of mm. things or the complexity comes in. Who does it well then at the state? You compare the states, who would you say um, is the best at it at the moment in Australia? Yeah, look, interesting. At the moment, I think New South Wales is definitely performing well. Yeah. Um, without a doubt. Not just on the fire response, but more generally around the community of resilience. Uh, in a, well, no, interesting enough. Um, yeah, good. That's a very good question. Oh, I, I think there's elements in, in the states I know, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, uh, and South Australia, and I know them reasonably well. I think there's, there are elements in all of those that have got some communities that are very good. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that, they are different communities, but a remote community in the back blocks of Queensland has a tendency to stand alone and stand strong. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not picking Queensland for any, any other reason that I, I do know a couple of communities that do that really well because yeah. they are, they're almost remote. They're not connected. Yeah, I've seen that in first yeah, hand. Yeah. yeah, and you go, geez, like they're seriously good. What do they do? You know, you can just feel it about them. They've got this fabric about how they operate. On the other flip side of the coin, then the emergency services side. So uh, that, the community resilience is one pet piece. How do you see the differences between the way that they respond over there, the way they communicate to the communities in, in a in a fire or a major emergency. There's some the way we do it here. There's some things that I think we've done exceptionally well here that should be utilised in the other side of the world. Um, but like, they, what would they be? Uh, our warning system. We, we've okay. got a more integrated warning system, without a doubt. There's no doubt about is that. Is that just Victorian based, or is that uh, Australia wide? Strong in Victoria, yep. because of the way the app is in Victoria, and it's got one app that gives um, the Victorian the the Vic Emergency app gives um, multiple information off one app. So it's not just fire or it's not just flood. Okay, so it's a multi... Yeah, it's okay, a multi, multi, yeah, multi yeah, so, yeah, and you can turn filters on and off. Um, uh, but also, it, it, that's working for 6 million people in Victoria across 
uh, you know, what I just said, LA County's got 10 million people in one county. Yeah. In the six counties in the southern part of California, there's you know 28 million people. So it's it, in six counties, there's more people than what live in Australia, yeah. and there's 38 heading to 40 million really soon across California. So, so in that sense, one app might not work, and I, I think they're right. So they've got to be careful what they're doing there, and then uh, I think you've got to listen to the community of what the biggest threats are, and remember one of the biggest biggest threats or the biggest threat um, across the communities of California is earthquake. Yeah. An earthquake is the one that touches everyone, everyone, where fire will touch not all of them. Although I think people may not understand how much fire gets right into the into the down parts of LA LA city because of the the terrain and the you know the canyons they've got and the and people live on the ridges. Yeah, and it's a different fire fight. Mm. So it is a different fire fight. Yeah, than what we're used to. The canyons the canyons create different fire behaviour, and also challenge the way in which you fight it and therefore communicate to communities. So, so yeah, so that's all there. I, I, I've, and I've only just been talking to LA County in the last number of hours, but I've been very careful to say what Australia has achieved is fantastic to learn from, but likewise what California's done is also equally important to learn from. Yeah. But we are different. Their building design because of earthquake is different than the building design in Australia. So put that there and they use different materials for that reason. So, okay, and some of that might be seen to be conducive of fire impact quicker and harder. Okay. So, yeah, so so they're interesting about what we've done in building design, but mm. likewise you go, hey, I don't think you can just pick that up and put it in there without the context of what it is you're dealing or with. Or the threat environment they yeah, have. The, yeah, the environment, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, look, I think there's lots to be shared. The, the, thing, the thing about California and Australia is that there's a cultural issue of communities. Mm. Love, love hot weather, love beaches... Uh, they they are recreation focused, you know. So so we've got we've got things that culturally yeah. Yeah. that come out in us, and that it's almost yeah we know we're going to have fires. We live in California. We know there's going to we live in Australia. We know there's going to be fires. Mm. I, I think one of the biggest impacts that will change this discussion is the amount of smoke and the impact of smoke. Yeah, I think that's a big uh, big effect that we're seeing across the board, both yeah. um, you know visibility impacts on the roads. Um, but then, yeah, the impact on the air pollution yeah. levels in. Uh, I know for a fact in San Francisco, who would not have fire in there, not significant fire, mm. but the fires that were just adjacent to them, the San Fran or the Bay Community were very, very um, clear to the government about you need to manage this fire stuff better because this smoke issue that goes day after day, week after week, is not acceptable for our health. Mm. And I think you're going to start to that discussion will come out in Australia pretty strong. I reckon smoke over the next years will be a really key discussion. And, and I suppose that does um, prevent a lot of burn-offs before preemptive burn-offs, doesn't it? That's, you've got this circular discussion. Yeah. So you've got this, what do you do? You've got the environmental challenges, you've got bushfire management challenges, you've got land management challenges, you've got flora and fauna issues, and you've got air quality and smoke. And you, and you think about air quality and then the, me, the medical health and don't underestimate smoke. What smoke does in a mental health sense, day after day of smoke, day after day has an impact on you in a in a psychological sense as well as a, a medical yeah a, a well being sense. So the health and well being issues of smoke are with us, and I reckon they're going to be a, quite a significant debate of the future. Yeah, and, and fire leadership needs to understand that it is yeah. yeah. Cameron Schwab, uh, he was one of my interviewees a little while ago and I, I sat through one of his leadership forums the other day, which is an amazing thing in, as part of his design CEO business. One of his quotes was about, you know, businesses or organisations don't necessarily ascend to the heights of their objectives, they fall to the levels of their systems. How broken is our systems in, uh. in Victoria or Australia and, and, and is it, are they going to help us over the next 10, 15, 20 years to deal with these changing threats that we have? So one thing we've got to be careful about is to sit on our hands and say that, that we've got the best because once you say you've got the best, someone will, will prove you you're not the best. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's an there's a absolute need to take a stock take to say what has changed and what is different. And when you, when you do that objectively, you'll test it, your own capabilities and capacities to say we need to do something different. Uh, I, I think in the emergency services across Australia, uh, and this is this is a generic thing because there's plenty of examples that could tell me I'm wrong in this, but um, I think we're not we're we're not easy adapters of new technologies, um, and we need to get 
better at that collectively. And if you're not careful, the community will have better systems than those that are leading and be seen to lead. And in times of crisis, you want your emergency services to be at the cutting edge of stuff. Yeah. So technology, integration, uh, utilisation of innovative ways has got to be at the front of their discussions all the way. Uh, and I think it's too easy to be busy in the busy loop and not thinking about the future loop, yeah. and that's that bit. So, it, And the other thing, you've got to spend time with your people. These organisations are people organisations, and you need people organisations to understand their people and understand the people they serve and don't dis- get disconnected from the communities you serve. The communities you serve are really important. Do you, do you believe in the term black swan event? Uh, I've... I do, and I've explained it in the simplest way in the media only days ago that, you know, it's when everything lines up. And the only thing about the Black Swan event is when you say you've had one, there's probably one just around the corner. You've got to be careful because it's quite often seen the Black Swan event is the one-off event. The one-off. Yeah, and I think you've got to be careful of that. That, That's even the term about this is unprecedented conditions. Like... But they're foreseeable, though, aren't they? I yeah, mean, yes. what, what do you just say is the difference then? Because I, I, I certainly don't believe that any of these things are... I don't necessarily believe in the unforeseeable. I think what we've got is convergence. Yeah. I think the convergence thing is what people need to see. So yeah. the heat event that becomes the bushfire event that yeah. becomes the smoke event that becomes the... Yeah, I, I think it's convergence of issues yeah. and therefore then it takes you to the consequences of those issues. Not the impact, it's the consequences. Mm. Yeah. So the impact is, yep, we've got more people that have mm. got... Um, face masks because of the smoke in Sydney today. The consequences is what is that mean in all sorts of things. You know, all of a sudden we become, uh, and I and I'll, I'll reluctantly say this, but you 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 you're seen as a third world country because of the way in which the environment and we are dealing with. We don't want to be seen as that. We do not want to be seen as that. Um, I've watched you know, the policy about turning power off on bad. Yeah, like extreme. Yeah, yeah. And I've watched California, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, they've got to do it their way, but they're turning power off and the consequences are so significant, but they still had fires. So work that out. Like you turn around and go, we've turned all the power off, no fires. Well, sorry, they still had fires. Yeah. Um, well, so it's not a load shedding event, it's not about managing they, peak or anything like they, that. They, they turn, they it, turn off it off as a, as a preempt. Oh, they, okay. they go and turn the power wow. off and in, and you know for 72 hours. To stop the, to the, the, the potential spark of, yeah. or anything. And yeah. then they've still had fires. So it hasn't so you turn around and go, gee, the consequence of turning that off has had huge impacts on health, on food preparation, on safety in communities, on on commerce operating effectively. Got no power, that means we're not going to work. Yeah. So, and I'm saying, hang on, look, just be careful because what you've got here is you've made a decision on one thing, but the consequences in 12 hours, 24 hours, 72 hours are very significant. Yeah. So, so all of these have got consequences and we're now starting to see massive policy decisions about energy and power and community safety that used to just be seen, oh, that's just a bushfire problem. Well, it's not anymore. It's, it's converged and it's got consequences and I think they are very, very significant. What would you advise now having the gift of hindsight and seeing some of these other organizations around the world the way they operate what would you have done differently i'll I'll say the things i'll give you a couple of the things that i think worked that you would lock in one is to turn the system about being focused on the community so community centric and community focused discussions are really important in a strategy sense Um, Setting clear priorities of what's important and communicating, and particularly in the emergency service where they're paramilitary organisations, so they need to get clear direction. Um, Systems that work that join people together. Don't ask people to work together if your systems don't help them work together. So you've got to spend time on, uh, they talk about interoperability, but joined up systems, systems that allow people to work together but also make better decisions together. Because once you do that, if we've all got the single map that we're looking at yeah. and we all understand it and we, we, we'll, we'll be playing. If, if I give you one map and I've got a different map, how can we work together? Can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, if we do, it's a struggle. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's about us then. It's yeah. not about the system. So the yeah. systems have got to make it easy to work. And if you get people that are trying to design systems apart, it's probably because they're, they're telling you they don't want to work together. Yeah. So how, how you design systems and then you've got to get the human behaviour. And the human behaviour is big. Change does not come easy in anyone. 
and particularly if you're very traditional in your thoughts or your organisation or the way which you see things or are you protecting something that's important to you but someone else is asking you to give it up. So the last bit then is culture. Yeah. You've got to understand culture. And you don't have to go and change culture and threaten culture. You've just got to understand it and understand what it gives to you and the blockers it's got, the barriers it's got and the advantage it will give you. And culture can sometimes be a huge benefit and other times it can be a problem to get where you've got to get to. You're a big you're a big challenger in your time, I thought. And as an outsider looking in, I admired the way that you went about it, bringing it all together, and, and especially post what had happened into that. I mean, that was a massive impact yeah. on our community. I had a young... It was very interesting. I was going up an escalator in the Brisbane airport, of all places, and this young military fellow walked up behind me and he, and he knew a little bit about me. And he said, I've watched you. And he said, you're spending time on the right things and if you keep doing it, you'll be successful. And he got off the top of the escalator and left. And, I, and I, I've always thought I should have grabbed him and said, what, what, why did you tell me that? What did you see that told me that? And the things I just talked about, I think, were some of those, that it was about how do you get um, a systems but also set priorities and direction that people can use. People can use. It's not gobbledygook. It's people can connect to it and use it. Yeah. That's a success. That's got to be something of success in it. And even when we, and I've told this story many, many times, but you know, for the first 12 months when I was a fire commissioner, it was all about interoperability. Now, interoperability yeah. is a long word. In, yeah. the end, in the end, we said, no, no, we'll, we work as one. If we work as one, all those other things will happen. Yeah, and you know what? They went out and did it. Like, we work as one was so much easier than talk about interoperability. Like, <laughs> you know, 16 letters in a word, I think it is, and you turn around and go, what's all that mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had to simplify it so people could connect to it and own it. Yeah. And that's that's part of change management strategy and leadership, yeah. I think. It, it, yeah, yeah. So, but then you've got to, but you also got to have structure about strategy and goals and missions and all those things that people talk about. You've got to have it, but it doesn't... It, you know, if you write on a piece of paper, not a lot of people read these papers. <laughs> you know, they're too busy to read them or, yeah. or they've got their part to play. So, But joined up leadership and remember leadership reaches at everything. The, the newest player in the game is a leader. And so as the oldest hand in the game, they're all leaders. They just might influence different at different times. So, And I think influence is important. How to, how to, influence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, how to listen and influence and how to navigate and drive are some of those things that are, yeah, look, talk all day about them. And some, some of them are in leadership books. Some of them are things you go, yeah, that leadership book told me that. I've read some leadership books I put down and go, seriously? And then I've read other ones you go, wow, look at that. Colin Powell um, has written a leadership book, and I often use it because it's a really good... And he, he's, he's, he's reflected on his days of multiple different leadership in, the, in what is a very complex US government. And I'm not saying he's the ants pants, but it's one of those he's written it away. You can go, got it, got it. Oh yeah, that's something I've never thought of. Yeah, it's it's not hard reading, but it gives you the the confidence to say, gee whiz, that was the challenge, and that's how they got there. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so given your work around different uh, organisations here in Australia than overseas, who's the best leaders that you've probably seen and probably admired? Yeah, look, they, oh, interesting you say that because I, I see. There's a lot of committee leaders that just impress me. You go, they know their stuff in their turf. I'm going to ask you to name some names, Craig. I'm uh, going to leave you. George, look, look, look George Casey Jr. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So he's a, he's a four-star general retired yep. in the US military. He led the Iraq War, yep. 34 countries under his command. Uh, George we've used in leadership courses, and I've got to know George personally quite well. Uh, he is a leader, but he's got a personality that's got passion in it. And you go, there's a leader, because he's got that other bit that just comes out of him. Yeah. But he's also got this massive um, experience base to lead the Iraq war with 34 coalition countries, not all of them could speak English, and to keep them all together against whatever they were doing over there, that's got to have some leadership. Mm. Yeah. But he's got leadership and he's got management skills. He's got, you know, he's got the charisma. Yeah, he, so he's got those things that go, and you know what? One of the best listeners. Yeah. One yeah. of the best listeners. I think, um, I think if I could be completely wrong here, but I interviewed Senator Jim Mullen, uh, former general yep. as well. He, um, I think he worked for, well, he he did. Worked for Casey. He did. He worked for yeah, Casey. Yeah, so he, he spoke about Casey's checklist. Yep. And yep. about how, he's, uh, how, yep. how he applied a checklist for any... Um, any 
back briefing or yep. any issues that were raised with him. Yep. And, and it was also then about how, you know, if you've got that bigger job, how, how do you remember the important things to remember and how do you inspire? So, yeah, and there's lots in, in what he talks about. So he's one. Yeah. Um, in a political sense, and there's many that um, you go, they're great leaders and they're not so great leaders. I think, and it's probably because of the time, John Brumby, as the Premier of Victoria in the 09 fires, he was exceptional. And uh, I'm not saying other Premiers would have done it any different, any better, but in on the day, his uh, empathy, understanding, uh, strategic positioning... Uh, was just exceptional. Uh, I don't mean exceptional. You, you, I just don't think you could fault him for what he did. Uh, maybe uh, maybe he got so involved in that, maybe he didn't win the next election because of it, and I, I'm not saying that's right, but he was committed to understand the pain of the Victorian community and what it meant for Victoria, and he was committed. And he showed ep- exceptional leadership in his judgement, in his understanding... But he also was um, calm. He was all those things you look and say, he's calm, he's got passion, he cares about this, and he's going to make it happen. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, forget the colour of politics, this is about the personal traits yeah, of a person. Yeah. And he, he, he's got it. He, he is exceptional. Um, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are personally impacted on me on names that people wouldn't know, but they... You go back and you go, that person and that bit about caring for people and understanding people and being a person to get somewhere. Because I think the bombastic days of, you know, the years have gone where it was the, the one that yelled the hardest, yeah. that, they annoy me to no end. Yeah. They just annoy me. But but on the same token, I tolerate people like that because you go, well, where they come from and they've been successful doing it that way. And yeah. and I think it's an old leadership style, though, like yeah. seriously an old leadership style. Is, yeah. um, so that's there. Uh, currently, I think in an emergency service, Shane Fitzsimmons in New South Wales is the clubhouse leader by a long way. Yeah, he's doing a great job. And uh, he just he, he just needs to make sure he's there for the long haul because, you know, you don't want a leader be fatigued or emotionally impacted by what they're up against. Um, and I, I, I do know Shane personally and I think his knowledge of understanding of the New South Wales community is the bit that puts him there. Yeah. He knows it. Yeah. He knows the back. He knows what they're up against, yeah. so he's not he's not reaching. And I think the other one that's exceptional in in a in a senior leadership role, who's a woman of significance, is the current governor of Victoria, Linda DeSalle. And Linda is uh, just a special individual that knows how to connect to people, uh, provide direction, but I tell you what, knows how to listen to community issues, like seriously listen and be able to have that discussion that includes people in the discussion and it's not a one-way discussion. She is exceptional. Yeah, brilliant. She is exceptional. Yeah, brilliant. And the question I always ask every interviewee as part of the crisis talks is if you had a chance to sit down with one leader that's led through a crisis, uh, they may be alive or deceased, who would that be and, uh, and why? So Mark Gilaguchi, who is the current director of the Office of Emergency Services in California and answers director Governor Newsom, um, Mark is an exceptional individual in the sense that in his early days, the Oklahoma bombing, he was involved in the, the management and aftermath of Oklahoma, which is now in the 90s. Um, and that probably changed his direction in his career. But to sit across emergency management in California, you, you, it's all there. It, it's there. It's a big... It's, it's got all of the elements of fire, the flood, uh, the urban growth issues, earthquake in particular... Uh, and people that are really focused on on issues from uh, one end, the southern end of California, which is very different than the northern end of California. Yeah. And I, I find Mark um, just a really um, well-rounded, sounded person that knows how to lead but has been in the emergencies and can give you the understanding of why that happened a certain way. But he's also got a very good future look. He's very, he's very future-looking. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a brilliant segue into, into finishing for yourself, but certainly you've led through a lot of those major incidents that we've been involved in or been a part of our community and, and our recent history in particular. Uh, it's great to see you also going into the private sphere now with Innovation Pro as a CEO and founder. I wish you all the best in those new endeavours, Craig. And Craig Lapsley, thank you very much for joining us today on Crisis Talks. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you.